Hello, and welcome to Tardigrade Talks. I'm your host, Dr. Jody Samra, and this is a podcast for anyone interested in cultivating greater psychological health, wellness, and resilience. In each episode, I'll share authentic and thought-provoking conversations with inspiring guests, along with evidence-based skills, strategies, and approaches you can use to cope with the stresses of life and enhance your personal and workplace resilience. Today, I have the incredible honor of introducing you to our guest, Michelle Brunoro, an award-winning anchor and reporter. Michelle is currently the Fraser Valley Bureau Chief for CTV News Vancouver and has received regional, national, and international recognition for her work, including winning an Edward R. Moreau Award in 2006 for a six-part series on crystal meth. She was also the recipient of three Jack Webster Awards, most recently for being a part of a team covering BC's opioid crisis. Michelle is also a breast cancer survivor and bravely documented her journey with breast cancer with CTV. Through her blog titled The 3800 Club, Michelle blogged openly and honestly about her experiences through this journey. We'll be talking about living out childhood dreams and the passion behind being a voice for others through storytelling, the emotional impact of sharing others' raw and heartfelt stories, the value in using exercise, movement, and nature to positively shift focus, and the resilience it requires to endure being diagnosed with an extremely aggressive form of breast cancer. A great big welcome, Michelle. It is so lovely to have you here today and to be on the other side of the interview mic. Oh, that is a, that is a change. See, it's, it's weird. Now you're the one asking me questions. It's a whole role reversal here. Thank you for having me on your show. (laughs) Does it feel like you're losing control? (laughs) (laughs) I think so. I think how I do through this. Awesome. Sit back and relax. I'm very excited to be having um, a discussion about so many important things today. Um, And Michelle, what I'd like to do is go way back to the beginning. Um, You wanted to be a journalist and later a TV reporter and anchor specifically ever since you were a young kid. And and as I understand, you grew up kind of on your farm with your family, listening to people like Jack Webster. And and, uh, so tell me a bit about that, this keen little kid that's listening to talk radio. Yeah, you know, I have three kids of my own and I know how difficult it is often for kids to know exactly what they want to do when they grow up but for whatever reason even as a young kid I knew I wanted to be a journalist and I would listen to Jack Webster and other talk radio programs my friends were listening to music on the radio and I was listening to talk radio and I was so inspired by him and some of these other journalists and the work that they were doing and just being this voice for people. And I just knew right away when I was a little kid that that's what I wanted to do when I grew up. You know, amazing, because that is not what most little kids do, right? And and I remember, right? It's like, tell the parents to turn off the talk radio, right? We want the music. And and so where, where do you think that comes from, Michelle? I have no idea. I mean, you know what? My... My parents are super caring people who 
um, will go out of their way to help people. And so maybe some of that comes from them, but it was just something that was just maybe laid on my heart. And I knew right away what my passion was to do in life. Yeah. And what, what drew you so much? Like, I, I mean, you've talked about um, just really admiring how people like Jack Webster fought for people. And, and I know community is such an important focus for you. But tell me kind of even when you look back to your younger years, the elements that really stood out to you and, and had that pull for you. I think maybe just the, the kind of job where you could be a voice for people who otherwise wouldn't be heard to be able to fight for the little guy. And as journalists, we talk about this, the being able to do stories where you shine light in dark places. And I know we talk about this, but that is really what drew me to it. Um, some people end up, you know, doing humanitarian work when they have that sort of passion in them. But for me, that passion was very much directed in the, um, towards journalism. Now, now you went on to um, complete a communications degree at Trinity Western and a journalism program at Langara and got your start in the business writing world for community newspapers in the Lower Mainland. Um, and you still believe that some of the best stories are found at the community level. Um, and so tell me a bit about that passion for community and what specific aspects of local community kind of really lead you to put such a strong value on, on, you know, really kind of some of the most inspiring and best stories that we can find. I think really it's just all about the people, right? I mean, I think everybody has a story. It's just being able to find that story. And I, and I love hearing those. And so, you know, in communities, there's Maybe the story isn't something that you're going to see on a national level, but every individual has a story. And I, and I love getting to know people and hearing those stories. Yeah, so true, isn't it, that the, the stories, you know, I, I so believe that all of us want to share our stories, even those that are immensely difficult or challenging, overwhelming, it, you know, the ones that hold even shame and tragedy for us. I certainly have a whole new level of respect for people and appreciation and admiration for people who are willing to share their stories after sharing my own story with cancer because it's really tough. It's probably for me sharing my cancer battle is the most difficult thing I've ever had to write about. So I really appreciate that people are willing to open up and share these personal things. Yeah, there's so much um, vulnerability required, isn't there? Especially when we're sharing the most intimate pieces of our struggles. Um, and I guess when you look to, you know, you've of course um, interviewed and met, I mean, thousands of people over the years. And when you think of, you know, what is often that, that tipping point that you've seen or maybe the pull that allows people to feel that they have that courage to be able to share in a public or broad way? Sometimes it's because they want to see change. That's often a motivator. I often hear, I'm doing this because I don't want to see another family go through this. I, I want this to change. So I think that's often it. And because they believe that by telling their story, they can make that difference. 
Yeah, finding that finding that meaning and purpose, right, in our tragedy um, and channeling it in a way where there's impact is, you know, I believe just such a universal drive for us. Um, but not easy, is it? And of course, of course, and we're going to get to this in a lot more detail, but certainly going through your own personal experience, it sounds like that was very humbling for you to to understand kind of the good, bad and ugly of of taking those steps even when, you know, our brain tells us that, yes, this is what I want to do. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a risk. You're putting yourself out there. And particularly in this time now where people, you know, have so much access to you through, you know, through social media and can post things without um, necessarily any accountability, right? I mean, you don't know who the person is that's talking about. So when you're sharing something really personal it's it's tough because you know that people can judge you for what you're saying yeah we open ourselves up to so much don't we um Michelle, when you think, because I imagine there's been, you know, so many times over over the years for you in your career where, you know, we don't just leave work at work and when you're getting immersed in 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 hearing um the intensity of, of emotional stories for a lot of folks. And, and tell me which, you know, what things have felt the hardest for you over the years, um, which have kind of evoked the most emotions for you? That's a tough one. Um, I have been very blessed that I have met so many people willing to share some very difficult stories and some of those people I've stayed in touch with over the years. I was um, going through my own cancer journey. Um, I was still in touch with a family who I'd met, oh gosh, maybe maybe 15 or more, well, maybe about 15 years ago, 12, 15 years ago. At the time I had followed a little boy for six months who had cancer. Um, he was just five years old when he was diagnosed, and um, he was six when I met him, and we followed him until his seventh birthday. And He was given um, only a 5% chance of survival. And the fact that his mom was willing to let us follow him on that journey day after day with such a, um, you know, the information they had from the doctors was a pretty dismal and gloomy outlet. and. He was amazing because he survived that. He beat the odds. And when he celebrated his seventh birthday, the day before his family had found out that he was in remission. Wow. And um, he would go on to continue to battle for many more years. It would come back again. But he was someone who inspired me. Um, but I also remember driving home from one of the interviews and just weeping because you, especially as a parent, you just, you feel that. So there's many families that I've spoken to of lost loved ones and their stories um, are heartbreaking and it's hard not to be impacted by that. And I think that as a journalist, it's in, we are um, balanced and impartial when we tell our stories, but we're also human and we are also affected by the, the things that people go through and the tragedies and the tough times that they experience.
Yeah, and that's something you know. I think as as viewers, we we often don't recognize, right? We get we get these sound bites of you know a story a few minutes, right? Usually at most, um, you know, we click the button and on it goes, and we see um, you know those those kind of key messages in the sound bites of the story. But of course, um, what you know the average viewer doesn't know is is often there's tens of hours, if not more, that have gone into really knowing and starting to get such a depth of information and understanding and and on the the individuals and families that you're reporting on yeah i'm sure like you you don't you know when you're when your shift ends at work your day is not over you don't go home and forget about the things that have happened that day and so as a journalist the things that the people that you talk to and interview you know you very much carry um, those experiences with you. It doesn't shut off because you walk out of the door of your workplace. Yeah. And you know, how, how have you found that balance, Michelle? Because of course, on one hand to do your job amazingly, amazingly well, uh, you need a tremendous amount of empathy, right? To be able to connect with and relate and understand um, the individual that you're reporting on. Yet at the same time, right? And I, I, of course, can speak from my experience as well, is we need to find ways to you know, kind of put a little bit of a protective shell around. Otherwise, we'd be riddled with emotions all day and all night. And so I'm curious for you, you know, over the years, how have you found your own outlets to cope and manage and and uh, be able to, you know, in some ways we have to compartmentalize a bit of what we're exposed to in our work environments? Yeah. So, I mean, my faith is very important to me and I find um, that helps me get through a lot. And I also just um, find exercising and for me, I'm I love the mountains. I love hiking. And so as much as I can, I want to be out in nature. And for me, that is just soul filling. Um, When I'm up on top of a mountain and I see a beautiful view, I feel like I can let everything else go. And um, I sort of, I need that balance to kind of um, let go of some of the things and, and it helps me find joy. I have so much joy when I'm in the mountains. Yeah, there's something so so naturally, isn't it? You know, we know from the research science um, as a as a fun little factoid that when we're in nature, um, we have these increases in our sense of awe. And it, you know, it kind of sounds like a strange thing because you think, okay, we're you know the the awe that we get, and and what we know is actually that boost that we get in that sense of of awe for something really kind of bigger and greater than us is so so, so, so grounding and so good and important for our mental health. Yeah, definitely. And um, I mean, I have read some studies on how important being out in nature is. And, you know, I'm, I'm one of those people who it absolutely makes a difference. My mood can completely change. And, you know, part of it is just the tranquility and the beauty and the awe like you talked about. And I think part of it is just that you're exercising and you're moving and um, it feels purposeful to get up to that, to the top, to get to the top of that mountain. Mm-hmm. And being intentional about it, right? That as well, Michelle, that, that kind of part of our brain that has to check in and say, okay, this is something that I need to do and especially need to do when you're feeling more vulnerable emotionally. Yeah, for sure. And I find, um, so I go for a run 
six mornings a week. And not that I'm a great runner or anything. And in fact, my children say that my run is more like um, a walk or that I might actually be <laughs> faster if I was just walking. So we're not talking anything impressive here. But I just find that just exercising and moving helps clear my head and it kind of sets my focus for the day. And, and uh, you know, if I'm feeling uptight about something, I can, I can get that out before my day starts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we get boost in serotonin as well, right? Which is our natural kind of antidepressant in our brain. And we have to love our kids for keeping us humble, right? (laughs) (laughs) Those little buggers. Well, I I run only if it's for my life. And so I admire anybody (laughs) that that regularly does anything in the realm of run. So, So good on you for the six times a week. Michelle have received um, regional, national, and international recognition for your work. Um, You have been very um, committed to um, reporting on the homelessness crisis, um, which we know is a massive issue here in Vancouver. Um, You have covered um, the opioid crisis. Um, You've won an Edward Murrow Award for a six-part series on crystal meth. Um, And I imagine perhaps one of your proudest achievements being the recipient of three Jack Webster awards. Um, The opioid crisis and homelessness crisis are clearly very important issues um, here in BC um, and becoming more so as the days go on, as we move through the pandemic. And so share with me um, where your passion there comes from and uh, what that experience has been like for you. Yeah. I grew up in the Lower Mainland. Uh, I was really lucky to grow up here. And I've just seen over the years the profound number of the increase in the people living on the streets. And it's easy to drive by and not stop. It's harder to stop and hear their stories because, you know, a lot of the people that I, not a lot, but there's certainly people that I talk to that, they they grew up in in perhaps families similar to mine. And so how did they end up there? And you hear a lot of tough stories. Some of the toughest ones I've done on the street, uh, talking to people living on the street, I did a, a number of stories um, on the Surrey Strip, which has since been cleaned up. Uh, one of the stories I, d- I did was uh, with women who were pregnant and homeless and addicted and living on the street. Uh, one of the women ended up actually having her baby on a sidewalk. Um, so those are, I mean, that's, it's heartbreaking to hear about that. And then as the um, opioid crisis began to escal- escalate, um, I was in, on the downtown east side one day, and I was just talking to some people who had, um, set up to try and help people. They were kind of patrolling alleys and stuff to make sure if anybody was overdosing that they were, they were there to help. And this was, this was early on um, when things were starting to get bad. And um, we were just doing an interview and then we were getting a little bit of B-roll of them sort of walking in the, in the alleys. And all of a sudden they see someone who is in need of help 
And in that moment, as they are rushing to help this person and administrating um, drugs to try and help them and calling the ambulance, and it's all unfolding in front of me, and it becomes very real. You know, we didn't know if that young man was going to survive um, because he wasn't coming to. He, he finally did. Um, and he was taken away in the ambulance. And, and I went back a couple days later and I actually found him um, on the streets again. Um, maybe it was, it was four days, five days later. And he didn't remember much about that day. But he did tell me that he had used again a couple times since then. And I asked him if he wasn't scared of dying. And he, he said that he wasn't, but I felt just um, that the pull from his addiction must be so strong that you can basically almost die on the street and, you know, and then go back and be using just a couple days later. And it just made it so clear about the help that is needed for people um, and just the compassion needed. Yeah, that that compassion piece, right? And I think as as you said, it's so easy easy to ignore and turn a blind eye, isn't it? You know, I think we've become so desensitized. Yeah, I mean, it's it's tough. Um, during the pandemic, I have been doing a lot of stories on seniors and the crisis in long term care in our province, and you know, that's a that's another um, area where. Um, I have just heard so many heartbreaking stories. And, you know, sometimes those stories are posted. And, I mean, they're, they're tragic. They're about, um, you know, seniors in care homes calling for help and nobody responding, seniors being left in, um, you know, wet pull-ups for hours and, and nobody um, changing them. And you're hearing all these sad stories and, and you're telling these stories and sometimes people are like, who cares? But I think that, I think we have to care. I think we can't forget about people just because it's not our, our life. And um, so in the case of the seniors, you know, they're, they're in care homes and, and the tough times it is for families right now who um, aren't able to see their loved ones in care homes and how the pandemic has impacted them. So yeah, you see, a, you see a lot of of difficulty, a lot of um, pain in, in all different areas. When you think about your ultimate you know, aim or hope or intended outcome with with reporting on on things that that we're not necessarily thinking of on a day to day basis. What what change do you hope to instill or propel? Man, you're asking me tough questions today. <laughs> that's my job. <laughs> I know, but usually that's my job. <laughs> um, you know what? You, I guess I just hope that by telling these people's stories that the concerns that they're raising um, and so right now 
We're talking about, you know, because I'm doing so many stories on seniors and what's what's been going on and them just feeling so isolated and cut up. I guess you're just hoping that their stories will be heard and that they won't be forgotten and that the families will be able to connect with their loved ones again. Because as you can only imagine, you know, care inside the home, of course, is so important, but connection with people is also crucial. And it's, it's part of um, our well-being. So, yeah, I, I guess I'm just, I'm hoping, and it's a tough balance, right? Because these restrictions are in place to, you know, because of COVID, the visiting restrictions are there to um, protect the seniors. Um, but some families worry that they're doing more harm than good. Yeah, there's, you know, as you're speaking, I'm, you're talking about the importance of us, you know, I think for all of us as citizens to have our attention and awareness to important issues, because of course we know if we don't even have our mind turned towards something or or don't even have awareness, of course, change will never result, will it? And and so, um, you know, I, I hear that that's a big part of your kind of mission as well, right? Let's put light on important topics so that we can be faced with even, you know, often it's being faced with the uncomfortable or the things that don't make us feel great. Um, but we know we need that to be able to Um, implement change as, as individual citizens in our communities. You know, the seniors and long-term care home situation, very personal for me. My my mother-in-law has been, as she calls it, in jail since March. Um, she's in a long-term care home in Kelowna, has not been able to leave um, at all. Um, you know, almost daily will tell us that she's in, you know, in jail. And, and the reality is, is such a complex issue and, and I know the frustration I feel I'll see it on social media right it's, it's almost like and we and we know we do this in society older individuals we kind of relegate to the back burner right and and we don't put I think the kind of value at least in our North American society that we see in in some countries and and places and and no easy answers because we of course are you know our social connections as you said are absolutely critical to our emotional and physical well-being. Yeah, I've definitely heard that same thing too from seniors who say that they feel, I mean, I did a specific interview with a senior who's on the island and he talked about how he felt like he was in jail and how lonely it was. And um, he talked about how others in his care home, some of the seniors who have dementia, they just, they didn't understand why their family wasn't coming to see them. And the whole reasoning behind it didn't make sense. And they don't understand And uh, when the visiting has been allowed, you know, why it's through um, plexiglass and why can't they hug these people? And why can't they be in their room? Um, and yet, on the other hand, you also see that most of the deaths that we're seeing in BC from COVID are seniors. And, and so many of those outbreaks in long-term care And the difficulty when you've got, you know, a care home, Langley Lodge um, suffered the loss of 26 seniors in their outbreak. Um, that ended in the summer. There's a care home right now in Abbotsford that 
um, has seen 24 seniors die recently from COVID. So it's very difficult. I love what um, one of the care homes, Menno Home in Abbotsford is doing, which is um, because so many staff are getting sick and not able to come in, they've actually started hiring or, well, yeah, they, they put the ad out anyway to hire family members to come and do some of the work such as laundry or um, delivering meals um, to seniors in the home because it allows them to be there and see their loved ones at a time when otherwise they wouldn't be able to because they're not allowed to volunteer. So, yeah, yeah. definitely tough times for families it is, in, and, and in long-term care. Yeah, I'm thinking of a, a story. I think it was on the island, um, and it was an older gentleman who took a job as, if I recall correctly, um, cooking in the care home on a volunteer basis, um, because that was the only way he was able to be connected to his wife. And I thought, oh my goodness, just, I mean, so sweet and heartwarming and humbling all at the same time, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. And when that home in Abbotsford put out that ad. The last I talked to them, they'd had more than 50 family members um, apply for jobs there. And they had to do it as a job because they're not allowed to have volunteers come in right now. Um, and, you know, you were talking about um, the impact, I, I think it was um, on your mother. Was it your mother-in-law? Mother-in-law, um, yes. Yeah. And, um, I mean, it's it's just a story that we keep hearing over and over again. and. And, you know, you really, your heart goes out to these folks. Yeah, but also a testament, right? When you, you, you know, fascinating, you think, my goodness, 50, 50 family members that apply. And isn't it also a testament to our creativity in finding ways to uh, be resilient, right? Because ultimately, that's what we're talking about. All of us moving through this very unusual phase in our lives, right? This extended prolonged phase of the, the pandemic and, um, you know, which we know, of course, isn't going away anytime soon and will continue to impact us for some time. But, you know, it's amazing as human beings, we put our frontal lobes to work and we can come up with all kinds of unique, um, creative ways while they're not full solutions. They can certainly work to enhance, um, enhance our overall resilience. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, for the seniors, the whole um, connecting on FaceTime and stuff and Zoom has become um, the way that they have that opportunity to, um, you know, at least hear the voices and see the faces of those that they love. So, yeah, definitely um, the, the ideas and the ways that people have worked to get around that, even just visiting through windows, at least it's provided something to help get people through for sure. Mm-hmm. Well, we were we were joking. My mother in law, who's who's eighty three, um, has um, had had a stroke, and so both cognitive issues, um, but is is also wheelchair bound, so physical issues as well. And and uh, we said at eighty three, she finally figured out how to learn to use FaceTime, and so so we oh, thought, that's awesome. It's good, and we're like, this is good for your cognitive function. It's good for your dementia as well. And and uh, you think, uh, uh, what's that saying? Of necessity breeds invention, right? So we have to we have to find workarounds.
Michelle, in October 2018, your life changed. Yeah, so um, yeah, it was October 2nd. I went to the doctor after I had really quite by mistake found a, a lump. And I have to say, I'm not one of those people who was doing self-exams or um, I was getting regular mammograms, but nothing had come up of concern. Um, and I had discovered this this lump and you know as women we're often not very good at taking care of ourselves we're good at taking care of other people mm -hmm. um, but we're not so good at taking the time to take care of ourselves so I kind of had to at first when I had found it I I wasn't sure what it was and I think I almost ignored it but it was definitely there and I had to consciously the effort to take the time to make an appointment and go to the doctor. And I mean, honestly, that felt like a big step. Part of it, because you don't you don't really have the time, you're so busy. And, and the other part of it though, being that you don't want it to be anything. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so I went to the doctor and um, she definitely confirmed that there was uh, an unusual lump in my breast. And she was great. She sent me, um, to get a, a mammogram, unfortunately, there was a some kind of a mix-up. And initially, they told me it was going to take um, oh, a diagnostic mammogram, not just a plain mammogram. So she wanted a diagnostic one. And initially, it was going to take about three months to get that. And that was the first appointment I got. And I felt like that was too long. And so I... I started phoning and I and I found out that they keep a wait list, um, at least at the hospital where I was. And so I got on a, um, or a cancellation list. And I got on a cancellation list, unfortunately, um, because somebody canceled and I could go in last minute, I was able to go in a bit earlier. And um, through, a, through a series of, of tests and stuff like that, and then um, they decided that I needed to have a biopsy. Okay, let's let's go rewind to the by mistake first of all. And like you, uh, I get my mammograms mostly on schedule because I get the little reminder that comes in the mail. Um, Self exams is not something I engage in. Um, so tell me, tell me first about that by mistake finding, and and uh, when you first thought, okay, something is maybe seeming a little bit off here. You know what, we were, I was actually um, on a trip with my son and a friend and her son, and we were going to hike the Inca Trail. It was a bucket list trip, mm. and my son ended up getting really sick, and we had to go off the trail, and we all actually ended up getting sick from the food or the water or something. And so we were hunkered down in, in a hotel, and we'd been sick, and I ended up just um, going... Uh, We've been sick for two years. I ended up having a shower and just really scrubbing down because I'd been sick and I hadn't had a shower in two days. And <laughs> that's when I kind of just discovered that lump there. Um, and so it was just really, yeah, it was just really fun, fortunate that, um, you know, this trip that kind of got ruined um, ended up perhaps being something that ended up saving my life. 
So you notice something and, and what do you, like, what are your first thoughts there as you're in the shower? Is it, okay, nothing to worry about? Are you kind of worried at this moment? Like what, what is going through your mind in that first immediate um, discovery? More like, oh, that's weird, but not thinking too much about it. Just thinking, oh, that's weird. Maybe, maybe I, you know, we've been hiking for a week previous to that. Maybe I banged into something or maybe it's from my gear and it rubbed it the wrong way or something like that. Um, my backpack or something. I, I wasn't sure. I, I thought it was weird, but then I didn't think much of it. And, and I thought maybe it would just go away, really, to be honest with you. Um, but it didn't. And so... Right. And so, and you know, and you're absolutely right that as, especially as women, we are terrible, 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 right? We take care of everybody else and you remember every drop of everything that your kids need and needs to be done for work and needs to even be done for the partners. And, but we don't do nearly as good a job as we, as we should. Um, and, you know, as a psychologist, of course, land of denial. We all kind of, uh, we all kind of travel to that land once in a while because it works, right? And we kind of think, oh, why go? We don't want to know. We kind of like, you know, subconsciously have all these kind of weird and wacky things happen in our brain that makes us think, ah, out of sight, out of mind, right? Which is, which is true in short doses. Um, and so at what point did you, Michelle, sort of say, okay, this thing is not just going to, it's not just nothing and it's not just going away. I had better get myself into a doctor's office. You know, my family, in my family, there is a history of breast cancer. And so, when it wasn't going away, I realized that I had to go and get it checked out. Um, my mom went through breast cancer treatment. Um, I have a number of, um, both my grandmas did, a number of relatives and aunts. So it's definitely in the family. And, um, you know, you just kind of get to the point where you're like, actually, you know what, I need to just stop and take care of this. And I'm sure it's nothing, but I just need to go take care of it. At what point do you know you have cancer? Hmm. So I think sometimes you don't have to hear from the doctor the diagnosis because you just kind of in your heart already know. And I don't know, obviously I was praying that that wasn't the case, but I remember the morning it was January 2nd, 2019, that I would be, I was scheduled to go to the doctor and hear the results of my biopsy. And I remember going for a run that morning and I was praying and I was really hoping that they would give me positive news. But I have to tell you through that whole run, I just knew in my heart, I just, I knew that it was cancer. It just, it shouldn't have been there. There was not really any other explanation for it. I had this family history and I just knew. So before I even went to the meeting, I ended up missing a call on my phone and um, the voicemail talked about, uh, it was just, a, it was a miscommunication and there was a voicemail talking about a treatment plan for me. So then I knew, you know, okay, they're talking about a treatment plan this must be it. And, and I went in and sure enough, yes, they told me that I had breast cancer. And you know, when that happens, even when you've prepared for it, you can't really prepare for it. You don't, it still hits you like a brick wall. It really does. 
those first few minutes, hours, and days, um, tell me about your your emotions. What was going through your mind? Um, yeah, just the headspace that you were in in those in that first short while after having the confirmed diagnosis. So even though I felt in my heart I had it, knowing that confirmed diagnosis, um, at first I was really just shocked um, when the doctor told me, and there was somebody uh, with the doctor as well in this little meeting room at the regional hospital in Abbotsford in the cancer center there. Um, I didn't, I didn't say much. I, I was just trying to process. I had a lot of questions, and I remember them having a box of Kleenex and wanting to know if I needed tissue. And at that moment, I wasn't crying. I, I just, I wanted answers. I had so many questions. What stage of cancer was it? How big is it? What, you know, what is the treatment plan? Um, what are the survival rates? I, I just had all these questions. And of course, when you first get diagnosed, they really can't answer, or at least in my case, were unable to answer all of those. All they could tell me is that I had a lump and that I had cancer. Was it in my lymph nodes? Had it gone anywhere else? What stage was it? What treatment? They couldn't tell me that. It wasn't until I left the hospital and got to my car, and I remember sitting in my car, and that's, and I was on my by myself, and um, that's when I when I, I had a good cry, um, and then I had to um, tell friends and family and tell my children. Oh, I think probably the hardest thing was telling my kids because mm. you don't want to tell your kids something like that. You know that it's going to hurt them to hear that, and you don't know what the journey is going to look like. So that was, yeah, that was super tough. Yeah, trying to trying to protect your little ones, right? While even when they're not so little, as as, as uh, a mom, of course, wanting to protect them, trying to make sense of something that just is probably in those, you know, f that first while, just so nonsensical. The the shock that our brain and body and heart goes through. Um, Tell me about how things then moved um, through the rest of 2019, because of course you started to undergo chemo and treatment and, and talk, uh, talk about that journey. I think once I got over this sort of initial shock and then grief, um, I kind of went, okay, so I've spent my whole life asking questions. I need, I need answers to these questions. And I also think that something clicked in me that, yes, I had this diagnosis, but I'm a fighter. It's just, it's, it's who I am. And I was going to do everything that I could to fight this. And so the first thing that we did was um, surgery. And I had the choice of a lumpectomy or mastectomy. Um, my mom had had a Lump to me, she ended up needing a second surgery as well as radiation. And um, I, I talked to lots of women, some of them strangers, like who had gone through breast cancer treatment. Most of them strangers, some of them people I know. It's amazing that all of these women were willing to share their stories with me. And it 
Um, you become part of this unofficial sisterhood, this, this club, 3,800 club, the number of women that are diagnosed in BC each year with breast cancer. And you're automatically welcomed in and people, women are, are willing to share their stories and, and let you know about their journey, which helped me in making decisions about what I would do. So I ended up choosing uh, because of what my mom went through and needing a second surgery and how hard the radiation was on her, I chose to have a mastectomy. So that was, that was sort of the first step. Yeah, and tell me about making that decision because, uh, you know, for so many reasons, um, you know, including everything, the complicated relationships we have with our body and, um, I mean, such, so many layers to making that decision to have a mastectomy. And tell me about what that was like for you. You know, it was hard to decide at first, but I think once I made the decision, I felt like it was the best thing. I, I didn't I didn't want to worry that the that the cancer that they might go in and do surgery and you know because it's a lumpa if I had chosen a lumpa to me, you know, they they miss some cells and it ends up spreading. And so I mean the idea of having a mastectomy is difficult. I mean, who, you know, nobody, nobody wants to do that, but your priorities kind of change and your outlook on life changes when you're faced with a cancer diagnosis. And the most important thing was for me to be able to survive. And I have to say that being diagnosed with cancer really brings everything into such a very clear perspective. You, you really reevaluate what matters most to you and things that maybe you would have let bother you before or that seemed important before don't seem so important. You know, um, disagreements, you know, over little things or whatever, they didn't seem, they don't, they don't matter. You, you realize how short life is and how every day counts. And um, so was it hard to make that decision absolutely but in the bigger picture it was for me the right decision yeah and it sounds that you had um you know as you're saying your your focus on the long term uh things get put in immediate perspective for us don't don't they and and all the small stuff that is so easy for all of us to get caught in fixating about thinking about obsessing about goes on the back burner, um, you know, and I, and I believe this fundamentally as human beings, we have an evolutionary pull to survive, right? And, and that's what I'm hearing is that for you, it was just, this is what I need to do. Uh, while the path to get there wasn't one without emotions, um, that it also felt like um, the path that you knew you had to take. You have the mastectomy and then your chemo starts. So um, I had the mastectomy and then you, 
It's amazing. You go into the hospital that day and you go home later that day. I, it never dawned on me that this was something that was this was just a day surgery because in your head it feels like something extremely dramatic. But in the end, I, I actually think it was great to be able to go home and sleep in my own bed. But then you then you wait two weeks. In my case, it was two weeks to get the results on the surgical results because those determine what happens next. Um, so they did the mastectomy, they took three lymph nodes and they look at that and see, okay, how much cancer is, the, is it in your lymph nodes? And that determines your treatment plan. So I went back in two weeks later to get my results and my results were really good. There was no cancer in my lymph nodes. They considered me stage one and we were so excited. It was amazing. Um, but my surgeon did warn me that I would still need to go see um, to go see an oncologist because they looked at other things that don't just have to do with the size of the tumor or the um, or whether it's near lymph nodes. But in my head, I thought I was home free. I, I thought I was done. Um, I had to wait several months to get in. Well, so. About mid-February is when I would have gotten those results. So it was sometime in March that I had my first appointment with the oncologist. And again, I walked in there thinking that this was just a formality. I remember when they called me and told me that it was going to be a 90-minute appointment. And I said to the lady on the phone, oh, I don't mean 90 minutes. Mm. I said, I'm sure that this is going to be pretty quick and I don't want to take time away from the doctor. And she said, well, this is just standard. This is, this is how long it takes every time. So when I went to that appointment, I remember just being floored to hear that despite being stage one cancer, that it was the grade of my cancer that they were concerned about. And it turned out that the cancer that I had was extremely aggressive, the, the highest grade of aggressiveness that you could have. Mm. And so then they lay out your choices. You you can do nothing and they give you the statistics for survival if you don't or you can do chemo and again another hard choice because chemo of course doesn't come without its side effects but i chose to do chemo and um and we went from there your chemo finished in august 2019 um, and so tell me what, you know, at this moment, chemo ends and, and what are you thinking, hoping, praying for, and, and what, how did things continue the next number of months? Well, I'll take you a little bit through, um, I'll back you up just a little bit. I, bef before I was diagnosed with cancer, I mean, of course, because it was in my family, I knew people who had it, but during the time that I was going through treatment, I had had four friends also going through treatment for breast cancer. One of them, a close childhood friend, was diagnosed just two weeks after me, which just blew me away. She was there the day of my surgery. I was there the day of her surgery. And then um, the, the day that my first blog came out, one of my other friends messaged me and told me that she was at the hospital and she had just been diagnosed with cancer with breast cancer as well. And she ended up losing her battle just two months later. Mm. And going through treatment myself, 
Um, and, you know, being like, I'm going to make get through this. I'm going to get through this. And she was exactly the same. She was like, I'm going to get through this. And, but the cancer had spread too far and she didn't make it. And that was really, that was, that was really tough. Losing my hair going through chemo mm. um, was tough. And her and I would sit there on FaceTime because she was in the hospital and we would like, we would compare our, our bald heads and mm. we would talk about what we were going to do when we got out uh, or when, when we finished our treatment and stuff. And, um, and so that was difficult. Um, and that is one of the reasons that I speak about it is, is for her because she would want people to, um, to be aware and, and to take care of themselves. Um, but I got, got through the, um, got through the chemo and that was amazing. I had been crossing the days off on my calendar every week. I would cross it off. And um, it was it was incredible that day to get to ring that bell. That symbolized so much to me. It one of my first times at chemo, I had heard someone ring that the bell, which people often do to mark the end of their treatment. Mm. And I had heard people laughing, and I um, just felt this joy, this this um, relief for someone else in that chemo room who had just finished, and I set my mind on ringing that bell and I just kind of clung to that hope and yeah it was it was awesome to get to ring that bell and know that I was done. When was it that you were told you were cancer-free? So it's kind of a strange thing when they when you finish chemo and you're kind of done treatment, but initially nobody sort of says, "Okay, you're cancer-free." But um, so I kind of the couple in in the months that followed um, when I would see when I saw my oncologist, I finally I just said to her, "I just need to I just need to hear those words," and she's like. There is no sign of cancer at all. You're considered cancer-free. So that was in the fall, and that was awesome. I bet. And and um, I mean, what do, what does now? What does your health look like these days? Um, what are you doing in terms of ongoing um, follow-up? Uh, what advice do you have for anybody going through a similar journey? Yeah, you know, I mean, chemo, of course, takes a bit of a, a well, I mean, not a bit of a toll. <laughs> chemo, <laughs> chemo, definitely, <laughs> chemo definitely takes a toll. Um, you know, I, I still have neuropathy and, and there's other things from the chemo. But you know what? I am so grateful to be here. I, I feel like I got a second chance and it gives me so much purpose in each day and in my work. Um, I guess my, my urging to people would just to women is just to take care of yourself and, and to do self exams and to go for mammograms because even when you think it'll never happen to me, it sometimes it, it still can. And so, you know, 
catch it early if, if it's going to and give yourself the best chance. Yes, very, very um, wise advice, I think, because it, as you said, so easy for us to get caught in the busyness of life and relegate things like our own health to the back burner, especially when we're kind of feeling okay or, you know, think, oh, we're healthy. I go for the run. I go for the hikes. I do these things, right? And And we have this belief that, you know, my goodness, this could never happen to me. Um, but I think important for us to all know that, um, you know, the correlation sometimes between our health behaviors and other outcomes is, is nil. Um, and that, that isn't, it's skewed thinking when we're approaching our health in that way. Um, Michelle, you, you, um, have a blog called the 3800 club, as you referenced, um, you know, referring to the fact that 3,800 women a year in BC are diagnosed with breast cancer. Um, when did you decide that you wanted to document your journey and, and share it publicly? Um, and did you ever have any fear or worry about that? Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know which of those questions I should start with. Um, I definitely, uh, so it was something, I mean, I, I spent my whole, my whole career telling people's stories. And when I was diagnosed, I didn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't know that I would for certain tell my story, but as, I mean, I, I thought maybe I would just go and I would have the surgery and then it would all be better and life would just go on. Um, but at some point I just felt like I needed to use my own story to raise, hopefully to raise awareness I was so appreciative of all the women who had spoken to me about their cancer journeys. It made me feel like I wasn't alone. And I wanted other women going through treatment to also know that they weren't alone, that it was okay to be scared, that it was tough sometimes, but that also there was hope and joy and, um, I mean, I, when I ended up starting to write it, I didn't know where my journey was going to go or where it would end up. Um, but a lot of my blogs, I would end just sort of with, I've got this, you've got this, we've got this. Because really, you don't get through it by yourself. It's, it's because of the support and the the doctors and there's a whole bunch of factors in and yeah, I just, I just really want to raise awareness and let, let women know that they weren't alone if they were going through this. Social support, right? We know, you know, going through any adverse life circumstance that our, our social support is um, the most critical ingredient that can help us um, come out on the other side of adversity in a way that we, you know, don't just survive, but but can even thrive. And, um, and, and we know from the research literature, if we look at um, women that are going through breast cancer, that all other factors equal, including stage of cancer, health history, et cetera, that those that have a stronger 
social support network that are more connected, um, that are sharing their experiences and connecting with those that understand um, have measurable improvements, right? Um, higher levels of remission, um, lower rates of mortality, increases in things like our T cell count. Um, you know, and it's fascinating. And I, I, I so commend you, first of all, for, for having the, the courage to share such an intimate part of your life when, when you don't know where that story is going to end, right? And, and to do it in, in such a public way requires you to be, you know, immensely vulnerable, especially when you're used to being on the questioning side and, and not the reporting <laughs> side, right? Um, but I think to just underscore, Michelle, that we know that sense of community and social connection um, literally helps us live longer if we're dealing with um, something like a breast cancer um, diagnosis. So thank you for that. Um, I guess in in closing, for our listeners who are dealing with any kind of significant um, health crisis, uh, whether it's breast cancer or some other chronic illness, what are the best pieces of advice that you have on remaining resilient, um, even when everything else around you is pulling you in, in perhaps a, a dark hole? Yeah, and you know, it's easy to get pulled into that dark hole. And, and it's unrealistic to think that there will be days that aren't dark and don't feel hard. I I remember specifically, you know, when all my hair was coming out and, and I had to get my head shaved. And I know it's just hair. And I kept telling myself it's just hair. But I had to go through a bit of a grieving process before I could accept that, that, that my battle was so much bigger than just that hair. And, um, and I think that knowing that, you know, I was blessed with family and friends who were so supportive and strangers who reached out to me during my blog and offered support. And that support is so crucial. And I, and I think just for people to know that there is light at the end of the tunnel, that there is hope, and that if they're having a tough time, to reach out to someone, whether that's a friend or a family member, or, you know, if it's, if it's cancer, they're going through, there's so many supports in place and people that you can talk to. And don't be afraid to talk about that. Because for me, you know, the, the mental battle was just as hard as the physical one. And, you know, whatever, a nurse gave me this great advice. She said, whatever you're still able to do, keep doing those, keep living your life. You don't, you don't stop living your life because you're in this fight. Keep living it as best you can and keep doing the things that you love and bring you joy. And for that was me, that was spending time with family and friends and, and climbing mountains. And I did that through my whole treatment. Wonderful words of, of advice. And thank you so much, Michelle, for, for taking the time to chat with me today on, on such an important topic. And thank you so much to our listeners for tuning into Tardigrade Talks. If you've enjoyed our conversation, we would love for you to subscribe and consider sharing with a friend. We have a breadth of free resources designed to help you enhance your psychological health and wellness on our website, tardigradetalks.com. Thank you, and I hope you join us at the next episode. Wishing you psychological health, wellness, and resilience until next time.